And so I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Malachi chapter 1. Malachi chapter 1. I'm going to call this short sermon series Failure and Faithfulness. And the reason why I have entitled it as such is because it will be very clear to you in chapter 1 the failure of the people of God to return to a proper form of worship to honor the name of the Lord as they are called to do in their covenant with Yahweh. But the theme that we see that runs through that is even greater than the failure of the people is the faithfulness, the covenant love of God fulfilled in the prophecies that are mentioned in chapter 3 and chapter 4. So we're calling it Malachi, Failure and Faithfulness. Malachi chapter 1. And uh, we're focusing on verse 6 down through verse 14, but I want to read the entire chapter. Heading in my Bible is Yahweh's love for Jacob. The oracle of the word of Yahweh to Israel by the hand of Malachi. I have loved you, says Yahweh. But you say, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares Yahweh. Yet I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau, and I have set his mountains to be a desolation and his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. Though Edom says we have been demolished, but we will return and build up the waste places. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, they may build, but I will pull down and men will call them a territory of wickedness and the people toward whom Yahweh is indignant forever. And your eyes will see this, and you will say, Yahweh be magnified beyond the territory of Israel. I heard a story years ago. I think it was relayed by Spurgeon. Someone said to him, I've got a serious problem with Malachi chapter 1 and verse 3 that says, Esau I have hated. And Spurgeon's reply was, I've got a greater problem with the fact that he could love Jacob. You know, we talk about we're all God's children. Well, the Scriptures tell us that that's not true. And we want to focus on that one verse of Scripture. Well, how could God hate? How could God... And we dealt with that in our sermon series in Nahum. The wrath of God interprets the love of God. But the bigger conundrum in my mind is not how God could hate Esau, but how He could love one like me how he could view me the way that he viewed Jacob and cast his loving gaze on my heart. And so I just want to stop there for a second and say thanks be to God. And if you are in the company of the redeemed, if you sit here today and you have cast your cares on Christ, if He is your only hope in life and death, if you have repented of your sins and trusted in Him, you can say the same thing, that His loving gaze is on you. All right, let's dig in, beginning in verse 6. A son honors his father, and a slave his master. Then if I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is the fear of me, says Yahweh of hosts to you? O priests who despise my name, but you say, how have we despised your name? You are presenting defiled food upon my altar. But you say, how have we defiled you? In that you say the table of Yahweh is to be despised. But when you present the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you present the lame and sick, is it not evil? 
Please bring it near to your governor. Would he accept you or would he lift up your face, says Yahweh of hosts? But now entreat God's favor that he may be gracious to us. With this thing which is from your hand, will he lift up any of your faces, says Yahweh of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the gates, that you might not light a fire on my altar in vain. I have no delight in you, says Yahweh of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun, even to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place incense is going to be presented to my name, as well as a grain offering that is clean. For my name will be great among the nations, says Yahweh of hosts. But you are profaning it in that you say the table of the Lord is defiled, and as for its fruit, its food is to be despised. You also say, Behold, how tiresome it is. Take notice of that, saints. How tiresome it is. And you disdainfully sniff at it, says Yahweh of hosts. And you bring what was taken by robbery and what is lame or sick, so you bring the offering. Should I accept that from your hands, says Yahweh? But cursed be the swindler who has a male in his flock and vows it, but sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says Yahweh of hosts, and my name is feared among the nations. May God add a blessing to the reading of Scripture. Lord, what we know not, teach us. What we are not, make us. And what we have not, give us. In Christ's name, Amen. I want to very quickly give you some of the background information about this book of the Bible. Malachi is the last of the twelve minor prophets. And if you know the outline, the layout of your Bible, it is the last book presented in the Old Testament. And we're going to see as we get into this study a little bit more in the next three weeks that there was a, an, a about a 400-year gap between the words that were written here in Malachi and the beginning of the New Testament and the Gospels. It's the last of the twelve minor prophets. The name Malachi in Hebrew means my messenger or his messenger. And many believe that Malachi was a contemporary of Nehemiah. As many of the same sins that are condemned in Nehemiah are also condemned by this prophet and in this book. And this book was written to correct the lax religious and social behavior of the Israelites. Many believe that Malachi was actually a pseudonym being used for the prophet Ezra. Now, we don't know that for certain. We don't know if Malachi was a real individual or if it was Ezra or another prophet that was writing under that pseudonym. That part really is irrelevant. It doesn't have any bearing on the doctrine and the theology of this book in any way, shape, or form. Rabbi Gunther Plout wrote this about Malachi. He says that Malachi describes a priesthood 
that is forgetful of its duties, a temple that is underfunded because the people have lost interest in it, and a society in which Jewish men divorce their Jewish wives to marry out of the faith. And as we dig into this text, you're going to see that all of these things are taking place and that they have stirred up the anger of God against His covenant people. During this time, marriage wasn't esteemed as it should have been. Divorce was rampant. The people weren't tithing. They weren't giving to God as they should. They weren't following the law of God. And they're seen here in the early part of chapter 1 questioning even the love of God. How have you loved us? They say arrogantly and defiantly. Prophecies are given about the coming of John the Baptist as well as the Messiah Jesus Christ. But as we think about the problems that we see in the text of this book of Scripture, we see all of those same themes at play today. Marriage is not esteemed as it should be. Divorce is rampant. People aren't giving to God and honoring Him as they should. They're questioning His love and His justice. They're defiant and arrogant towards the Almighty God. I want to read this from the New International Study Bible. Malachi rebukes their doubt of God's love and the faithlessness of both priests and people. To their charge that God is unjust because He has failed to come in judgment to exalt His people, Malachi answers with an announcement and a warning. The Lord they seek will come, but He will come like a refiner's fire. He will come to judge, but He will judge His people first. Because the Lord does not change in His commitments and purpose, Israel has not been completely destroyed for her persistent unfaithfulness. But only through repentance and reformation will she again experience God's blessing. Those who honor the Lord, they write, will be spared when He comes to judge. Now as we think about this narrative, let's flash forward in our minds centuries later. God was looking down on His earth. And He saw the people in all of their wickedness and all of their weakness. They had no hope. All was dark. And something had to be sacrificed if they were to be saved from their sin. What? Who? Well, God sent His best, it tells us in the Gospels. He sent His one and only Son, and the Scriptures tell us that God so loved. And so Malachi, in his prophecy, he is setting two things side by side. The love of God and the disgraceful worship of man. And as we prepare to celebrate with our family and friends this week, as we think about thanksgiving... We should think about worship. We should take a, a worship assessment, so to speak. Where do we find ourselves in this narrative? Where do we see ourselves on this scale? In this story, during the time of Malachi, Israel has returned from Babylon. It is a post-exilic letter. And they'd listened to the prophets that had urged them to rebuild the temple 
to rebuild the walls of the city, to return to their covenant God and the covenant that He had made with them all of those years ago. Judah had been obedient. They did those things. They rebuilt the wall. They rebuilt the temple. They returned to worship. But something was missing in this story. God seemed silent to them. And slowly the life that they were living, even their spiritual life, went back to just a normal grind. It went back to something that was cold and stale. The prophecy opens with an assertion that we would do well to cast our eyes on today. I have loved you, says Yahweh. And in the next section, he accuses the people of dishonoring him with shoddy and disgraceful worship and service. They say, how have, you, how have we despised your name? And Malachi charges them with this thought. You are giving God your leftovers. You give everyone else the very best. Your friends, your neighbors, your community. But then you come together for worship and you just give God whatever you can muster, whatever's left over after all of your other obligations. It really is a clear view of the degenerate religious life of Israel. The priests were accepting molded bread, blind, crippled, diseased animals to sacrifice on the altar. Instead of bringing their best, it's just leftovers. Now, I've already said this morning, I love leftovers. And if you want to bring me a plate of your leftover Thanksgiving, I will eat it. I love it. But I'll be honest with you, the rest of the year, I'm not big on leftovers. It's just something about turkey and the mashed potatoes and the gravy. It gets better the longer it sits. But the rest of the year, it's not as good. Why would we enter into our service to the Lord, our worship to the Lord, and just throw leftovers at His feet? And so what we see in this passage is the Lord is evaluating their worship, their sacrifices. And what He said here to Israel becomes a challenge to us today to give our highest, to give our best to God. And so here's the big idea that we're going to be looking at all throughout this study of Malachi. The final book of the Old Testament is about the error of forgetting the love of God. Let's jump in. I have three points for you today. Our second best does not honor God. Our second best does not honor God. It is the case in life that there are just certain relationships that command, demand honor and respect. Firstly, for your parents. The Bible tells us clearly to honor our father and our mother, to hold them in high esteem, to respect them. Saints, if you're married here today, you need to love and honor and respect your spouse. You need to hold them in high esteem. Martin Luther said, the Bible says to love your neighbor and your spouse is your closest neighbor. You should honor them, respect them. Even as we think about society and our own culture, there are certain relationships where respect is implied. 
One of the problems that we see today as it relates with law enforcement is that young people are no longer taught that lesson to respect people in certain positions. And so we've got criminals running the streets, cursing at our law enforcement, disrespecting them, opening fire against them, waging war against them. Maybe it's a a person in a high position, a ruler, a king, a president. There should be a a modicum of, of respect, of honor there. Even if you don't agree with that person's politics, we should to a degree respect that office and respect that person. There are certain relationships that demand honor and respect. And no Jew during this time period would have ever denied that a son was to honor his father or that a subject was to honor a king or a servant, his master. And God has identified Himself in this text as Yahweh, Lord of hosts. In verse 6, He identifies Himself as Father and Master. And then later in verse 14, as a great King. And notice what he asks in verse 6, Then if I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is the fear of me? Those who offer God their second best do not have an appropriate concept of God. And if Jesus Christ is God, and if He died for our redemption, then no sacrifice, saints, can be too great for us to make for Him. And so the question for us today is this, are we giving God our best effort, our best worship, our best sacrifice, or just our leftovers? Our second best does not honor God, but continuing on, our second best does not please God. The Lord suggested that the people offer their second best to the governor. Go give it to him and see if he'll accept your blind and your crippled animals. See if he'll accept the moldy bread that you've brought into my house. Would he be pleased? Would he accept such a sacrifice? And the obvious answer is a rhetorical question. The answer is no, he wouldn't be pleased. And so the Lord assures them in this passage that He has no pleasure in them and He will not accept their sacrifices. Do you know that you can give to God and He not accept it? If it cost you nothing, David said, why would I give to God that which didn't cost me anything? If it's not given with honor and respect and reverence, why would He accept it? He recommended that they lock the doors of the sanctuary, that they let the fires on the altar go out rather than to continue to offer unacceptable worship. Shut it down, God said. Let it sit there and rot. Let the fire go out because it's just a routine for you. It's just a formality for you. Your heart is not in it. You're offering me leftovers. You're second best, and that is not good enough, God says. He, told, he tells them in verses 11 and 12. Let's read it. Verse 11 and verse 12. 
I'm still learning the layout of this Bible a little bit. For from the rising of the sun, even to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense is going to be presented to my name, as well as a grain offering that is clean for my name will be great among the for my name will be great among the nations, says Yahweh of hosts. Notice verse twelve. But you are profaning it, in that you say the table of the Lord is defiled. And as for its fruit, its food is to be despised. And he tells them that he's receiving more reverential worship from the heathens than from his own people. Are you offering to God that which you would not offer to a lesser person? Are you offering to God that which even a pagan would not offer to their gods? Do you honor God by the life that you live, by the offering that you give, by the service that you render unto Him? And here's a thought that entered my mind this week. Do we as the people of God, I have, I have discussed this until I've been blue in the face, but one of the largest problems that I see in the church world today, in evangelical Christianity, is that we have houses full of people who love a God that they do not know because they are biblically illiterate. They know nothing of God and His Word. They know nothing of His law. They know nothing of the holiness that is God. They know nothing of the reverence that we are called to, the fear of the Lord. We're illiterate. We don't know His Word. And so I had this thought this week, do we as Christians spend as much time studying God's Word as the cults do spending, uh, studying their texts? Get in a debate with a Mormon. And if you don't know God's Word, they will twist you all up because they know their book. Stop and talk to one of the Jehovah's Witnesses you see downtown with their little pop-up displays that they like to have in front of the coffee shops in downtown Goldsboro. If you don't know God's Word, they will twist you all up because they know, they know their writings. Get in a discussion with a Muslim. We ought to be ashamed when we think of it. We ought to sit here today and weep and grieve over the fact that we don't know God's Word as we should. And we are not applying God's Word as we should. Here's the point this morning, saints. Our second best doesn't honor God, and it sure doesn't please God. But I have one final thing to draw to your attention this morning. And here's where we find the the bulk of the application for us today. Our second best does not satisfy us. Your half-hearted service, your unattentive worship, your lackadaisical spiritual life, it will not satisfy you. Here's what it will do. It will make you tired. It will wear you down. Malachi quotes the people in worship saying, you say, behold, how tiresome it is. How wearisome this worship service is. How boring it is to hear 
the word of the Lord read, the law of God quoted. And he says, and you disdainfully sniff at it. Other translations say snort at it. You know, you know that image, somebody's... Psh, whatever. Huh. Forget that. And that's what the people are literally doing in their corporate worship because they are not willing to give God their highest. They are not willing to commit their best to Him. But they're also not willing to abandon worship altogether. And so it becomes just a formality. It becomes something that they disdain, a dull routine. And I have seen it happen in so many Christian lives. There are people in my mind right now that should be here this morning that have walked away from the people of God. They've walked away from the house of God because all they could muster is their second best. And they grew tired. They grew weary. It became dull to them. It was nothing more than a formality. And instead of a passion and a fire for Christian worship and service, it becomes a drudgery. Something's missing. A religion that cost nothing is worth nothing. Let me say that again. A religion that cost nothing is worth nothing. And it will wear you down. It will tire you out. Because it brings no lasting satisfaction to us. Are we giving God our leftovers, our second best? Is our service sloppy? Is our worship dull? Is our passion fading? Our second best doesn't honor God. It does not please God and it does not satisfy us. more information about Pineview Baptist Church, we invite you to follow us on social media. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Pineview Baptist Goldsboro. There you will find information about our service times, upcoming events, directions to our church, and videos of our Sunday services.